Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Glad to be back. We've got another hour ahead of us talking about the things that matter most. When Christians say God is love, we are saying something that's just remarkable. And the more you dig into it and you see the love and communication that existed from all eternity, Uh, between the members of the Trinity, and you see the imagery that's used throughout Scripture to uh, identify the right relationship between God and his creation, uh, between uh, God and Israel, between Christ and his church. You hear the language of marriage. My guest, uh, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, is a Catholic theologian, biblical scholar, and associate professor of Old Testament and biblical languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, and he has written Divine Marriage, From Eden to the End of Days, which has gotten a good deal of critical attention in the uh, scholarly field. We're going to go uh, take a journey through the books of both the Old and New Testaments, trying to really unpack all that's meant in the phrase, God is love. And again, we'll look at it especially through the nuptial imagery, uh, which is present in both the, under the Old and the New Covenants. So that's coming right up. First, though, let's get the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, March 9th. It's the Feast of St. Gregory of Nyssa. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Iran's nuclear program is a top concern for Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. As President Biden has repeatedly made clear, the United States will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. Speaking in Israel, he added diplomacy is the best way to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Despite that, he labeled Iran the primary driver of instability in the region. His remarks come more than a week after the UN's nuclear watchdog says it found uranium near bomb-grade levels at a nuclear factory in Iran. According to CNN, the International Atomic Energy Agency took samples from the environment at the plant that showed uranium particles enriched to about 84%. To make a nuclear bomb, particles would need to be at 90% enrichment levels. Two state legislators are considering ending any legal protection for a priest who learns about sexual abuse in the confessional. Delaware's House Bill 74 and Vermont's Bill S-16 would both require priests who learn of abuse during the Sacrament of Reconciliation to report it to authorities and give evidence in legal proceedings. Catholic leaders in both states have warned that the laws are unconstitutional, put priests in legal jeopardy, and endanger confidentiality with penitents. And officials in Cincinnati say a big cat found roaming around a neighborhood has tested positive for cocaine. They said they were alerted to reports of a leopard seen in a tree in late January. It was determined the cat was a serval.
which is illegal to own in Ohio. A narcotics test showed the serval was exposed to cocaine. The big cat has been taken to the Cincinnati Zoo, where it's being cared for. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Andre Villeneuve. He's Associate Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He received his doctorate from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2013, where his dissertation covered nuptial symbolism in the New Testament and in ancient Jewish writings. His main areas of interest include the study of sacred scripture, the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, leading pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and fostering the reconciliation of Israel and the Church through the work of Catholics for Israel. And you can learn more at catholicsforisrael.com. Andre, good to see you again. Hello, Al. Good yeah. to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, let me get you a little closer to the microphone there, if you don't mind. About okay. six inches would be fine. All right. Um, talk to me that your book um, uh, on uh, divine marriage uh, from Eden to the end of days emerged from your doctoral work, is that right? It has. It's a book that's got a long history. It's about, uh, well, it came out in this recension just a little more than a year ago, but uh, its genesis goes back, uh, not to Genesis 1, not quite as far as that, <laughs> but uh, it goes back at least, I think, 15 or 16 years, go, going back to about 2007, back when I was a starting PhD student at the uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I was trying to scramble, trying to find some kind of topic that would be relevant to my studies over there and somehow connected with Catholic theology and would be able to... to 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 be a bridge between Jewish yeah. um, exegesis and and Christian theology as well, and so uh, it started back then. I, I I still have this original piece of paper. I I had all these arrows and all these topics, and I was trying to make sense of coming up with a theme. And um, so it took me about six or seven years. To write, I submitted in 2012, and wow. so that was accepted in 2013 when I got the PhD. And then it was published in a first very scholarly edition uh, by Brill. Mm-hmm. It was called uh, Nuptial Symbolism uh, Through Key Moments of Salvation History, something like that. I don't yeah. even remember. A very, uh, barely edited from my dissertation, still, so mm-hmm. still extremely academic and yeah. very expensive. Yeah. And so after that uh, it came out, I thought, okay, I'm done with that for the rest of my life. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to deal with that topic anymore, which of course was uh, was not true. I knew it at the time. But then after a few years, I thought, well, I've put in so much work into it, and I know that this is really too academic for most normal right. folks, you know. Yeah. And so I thought maybe I'll just write a somewhat simplified version of it. Yeah. So if you look at the book, it's still a pretty robust uh, scholarly book, but uh, yeah. it's a little more accessible to most uh, most people. And, uh, I mean, what you do is you really give an overview of salvation history yeah. from the standpoint of the nuptial relationship. Um, is this, is this um, nuptial imagery best developed within the Catholic tradition, or do you find other Christian traditions working it? Well, that has got a long history as well. So the, the Catholic tradition certainly developed it 
you know, beginning with the, the Church Fathers and then very much the, the medievals, and a big part of my book is the uh, exegesis of the Song of Songs. Yeah. So there's a lot of that in Catholic tradition. There's some in Protestant tradition, though we see a, a certain turn towards rationalism, yeah. as we know, going starting with Protestantism, then into the Enlightenment. But obviously, this does not begin with a Catholic theology or exegesis. It's very much a Jewish thing. Yeah. And... Uh, there's much mystery surrounding the origins of the Song of Songs itself, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. But the question is, you know, the, the kind of more modern view is to say, okay, it was just a kind of a, a love song between a guy and a girl, that's right? right. Who loved yeah, each that's, other. That's kind of the, that's right. It's kind of now been reduced to this kind of love poetry, romance, right. a bit of romantic poetry. Right. And, which is absolutely possible because the name of God is not mentioned right. in the Song of Songs, and there is no right. mention at least no explicit mention that this is a metaphor, an allegory for the, the love between God and Israel right. and God and his people. But some, uh, I think most modern scholars today would say, no, it's just an erotic love song between those two, kind of a marriage uh, then, hymn. Then how did it end up in the canon, then, is what I would ask. That's an excellent <laughs> question. So you still have a minority of scholars who would say, no, actually there was something intentional right there from the beginning. I mean, it could end up in the canon as a, as a marriage song. Sure. Right? I mean, Ecclesiastes sure. made it in the canon, too, and that's <laughs> yeah. a book full of, of skepticism. Very grim book. Very grim book. Yeah. Right, right. So there's... Uh, there's some debate. Most scholars, as I said today, see it as a marriage song, but we know that quite early, definitely at the time of Christ, that we, we see the beginning of, uh, of an allegor uh, allegorical interpretation, which throughout the history of interpretation has become by far the predominant view of reading the Song of Songs as this allegory between God and the Church. Yeah. And that, of course, builds on what we find in both the New and Old Testament, the, the marital metaphor which begins most explicitly really with the prophet Hosea, and we have it also in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and a little bit in Isaiah as well, and then that's picked up in the New Testament, obviously. But So in, in Jewish uh, thinking, um, is this marriage metaphor, is that... Ever, does that ever become central to Jewish thought, or is it just something, like I mentioned, uh, it starts with Hosea, okay, and so you've got that unusual relationship there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it, does it go back to, uh, you know, Jewish self-understanding before the exile? Before the yeah. exile. It's difficult to tell, but just the testimony of the prophets is a pretty strong witness. Again, Hosea, Jeremiah uses it, Ezekiel, and yeah. Isaiah. It's not all the prophets, and in the rest of Scripture, we don't find a whole lot of it. In the yeah. Pentateuch, there are barely a few hints. Okay. Uh, of course, the, the covenant is central to the Pentateuch, but, yes. and the, um, the revelation at Mount Sinai came to be seen as a nuptial moment, as a betrothal, but you can't really read that explicitly in the book of Exodus. Gotcha. Right? God That's, makes it clear. I'm making a covenant with you. I'll be a king of priests and a holy nation. Yeah. But it's not saying I'm espousing myself to you or I'm betraying right, you. Right, right. So that, that becomes something that is seen. Uh, and it's read back into what happened there right. in light of uh, later Right. Uh, understandings of who God is and our relationship to him. Right. So it's definitely there at the time of the exile because we have the pre-exilic prophets like Hosea and, yeah. uh, and Jeremiah. So, But it, it took off 
later in the Second Temple period, and then after the time of Christ with all the rabbinic writings okay. and the commentaries on the Song of Songs. So the rabbinic writings uh, make much of this too, this uh, marital metaphor. Very much. That's where it, it completely takes wow. off. It's, uh, it actually goes crazy with what we know as the Targum and the Midrash on the Song of Songs. They're ancient Jewish uh, commentaries. The mm-hmm. Targum is the Aramaic interpretation. Uh, it's supposed to be translation. Uh, the Targum is technically a translation of the Hebrew texts. An Aramaic translation? A, 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 Aramaic, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's actually very much a paraphrase. Yes, and it's the, really loose. Very extremely <laughs> loose. In fact, the Targum on the Song of Songs, you can't even recognize that it's the Song of Songs. Really? Wow. And uh, I, I, I don't know if any of my students will hear this uh, now because I always give them this text, which I call a mystery text. And I ask them to read it and to try to identify to which book of scripture it's related to. And it usually takes them weeks, and I have to give them hints, but it turns out it's the Targum on the Song of Songs, which reads the Song of Songs verse by verse. And once you see it, you can't not see it anymore, but it rewrites the entire Song of Songs as the history of Israel. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's remarkable. Um, what principles from the scriptural symbolism explored in your book can be applied today as we think about the love between Christ and the church? Well, that was one of the reasons why I chose this topic, because being at Hebrew University, I couldn't really write a, a dissertation on, on Catholic theology, right? right? They're focused on uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, a little bit of ancient Christianity, but it's, it was definitely not a, a degree focused on pastoral application. But I was still thinking... Uh, you know, at the back of my mind, how could I make this somehow relevant? And obviously, I, I don't think I really need to convince anyone that marriage is in crisis today. Not just marriage, but even since I've published my, my dissertation, um, this has devolved to an entire crisis on the very identity of the human person, as we know, uh, the, the identity of, of the human person has created male and female in the image of God. And so even even back then when I was trying to think of a topic, I was trying to figure out what could I do that's rooted in these ancient texts but would have um, pastoral uh, application or at least would shed light on the mystery of love between God and his people mm-hmm. and that how that sheds light on marriage between man and woman. Yeah. So you, you were able to see this uh, nuptial symbolism going all the way back to Adam and Eve? Yeah, for sure. But there, too, when you read uh, Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, it's funny what is not said. Of course, we know that account of the creation of man is extremely brief, it is Mm -hmm. extremely schematic, and more is not told than than we are told. But notice what what words are never used in there. Love, never used, right? right? Marriage, we're just told, okay, we're told that, uh, Adam, you will leave your father and mother, be joined to your wife, you shall become one flesh. So there's a good hint. We're talking about a serious union here, a sexual union. But the word marriage is is not used. And uh, so... uh, of course, everything that is not said in those initial chapters of Genesis becomes really uh, choice materials for biblical interpretation because the ancients, even at the time of Christ or in the Second Temple period, you know, the few, first, the, the few centuries before Christ, uh, of course, marriage was a big deal both in Judaism and also in early Christianity. And yeah. so there was a great expansion of those texts, um, yeah. Genesis 1 to 3 especially. Yeah, so the, again, uh, from later um, revelation and later reflection yeah. upon God uh, helps us to look back at the earlier uh, texts right. and see there 
um, templates right. for what's to come later. Exactly. Is that the way to look at it? Right. Um, so the the Midrash, which again is a uh, an ancient Jewish commentary on the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I did a lot with the Midrash on Genesis 1 and 2. And what we see, what does the Midrash do? It's it, the Midrash generally expands, greatly expands the biblical stories. And so what we're not told in Genesis 1 and 2, the Midrash says actually God was the um, uh, the matchmaker between Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. And God married creation himself. It's not just he created the world, but he betrothed all of creation to himself. Yes. And then there's other traditions that say that God betrothed the, the Sabbath to Adam and Eve. And so that were the Sabbath, every day of the week had a partner, right? The first and second day, the third and fourth, the fifth and sixth, but the Sabbath had no, no partner. Huh. And so in anticipation, God uh, anticipated saying, okay, the Sabbath, you're going to be, your bride's going to be Israel, but you have to wait a bit, right? Yes. Until Israel is constituted. And that, so it connects Genesis with Exodus, with the giving of the, of the Torah, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, with, uh, so that the Sabbath at this point is not just a commandment, but it's, it's a betrothal, right? Yeah, yeah. Going back to this idea of uh, union, uh, betrothal, between God and creation, is that something which you see, you mentioned it here, uh, is is there a, we know about Christ and the church, is yeah. there a sense of God and the world as a couple? God and the world as a couple, yeah. The created order? Yeah, once yeah. again, it's something you see more explicitly in the, the rabbinic sources, so we're mm-hmm. talking, most of them are po- post-Christ, yeah. the first centuries of the Christian era. Um so that is, it's more hinted at in the Old Testament, but even before that, Second Temple period, uh, guys like Philo and Josephus around the time of Christ really saw this idea of God being wedded to the world. Very good. Hold it there if you would, Andre. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, we are looking at the work that he's done on the nuptial symbolism in the New and Old Testaments. And we're going to continue uh, on the other side of the break. Today's programming on 990 WDEO is brought to you in part by a gift from our day sponsor, the Lansing Guild of the Catholic Medical Association. The annual Rose Mass for Catholic healthcare workers will be Saturday, March 18th at Christ the King Church in Ann Arbor, followed by a dinner at Fox Hills Country Club in Plymouth. Email cmalansing at gmail.com for dinner tickets. That's cmalansing at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak. Want a better family life this Lent? Join the Catholic Home 40 Days for Families Challenge. Lent calls us to do more to share God's love with others. The best place to start doing that is in our families. Go to CatholicHOM.com to download the premium version of the Catholic Home app. Use the promo code AVE for 50% off the first month. Discover how God wants to transform your family life this Lent with the 40 Days for Families Challenge at CatholicHOM.com. On Sunday, March 19th, Old St. Mary's Church in Greektown resumes its Sunday afternoon concert series with a program entitled The Sacred Cantata. Baritone Davis Gloff, accompanied by Bob Bernhardt and the Old St. Mary's Chamber Ensemble, will perform music of Telemann, Coupois, and Bach. The program begins at 2.30 p.m. There's no admission charge and free guarded parking. For more information, the parish website is oldstmarysdetroit.org. See you at the concert, a great event for Lent. 
This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. How is God speaking to you today? Few of us will ever hear an audible voice of God, but He does speak to us. It's called our conscience, or our God guide, or moral compass. Deep down, we hear God's voice, and we know what is true and what is false. In terms of basic right and wrong, we know what we're doing. Monsignor Charles Pope once wrote that he was convinced that our conscience interacts with our guardian angel. He also says we must be careful because we like to try to rationalize what we do to explain away our bad behavior. But in the end, deep down inside, we know whether what we're doing is right or wrong. Monsignor Pope also said that he is sure that it is our angel who testifies to the truth and informs our conscience. God's command is clear. Listen to and heed his voice. Respect the angel whom God has given to you, and not so much with the sentimental odes, but with sober obedience. This has been a Christ-centered communication message. I'm Vanessa Denhagarmo, a communications evangelist and host of Epiphany. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry, providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. What a Night, March 15th, will be at the National Shrine of the Little Flower Basilica. Each month, the Live at the Basilica series brings in renowned speakers to inspire and reinvigorate us to live as missionary disciples. On Wednesday night, March 15th, Michigan head football coach Jim Harbaugh, Christ is the Answer host Father John Ricardo, and sports broadcaster and All-American Tim McCormick will speak on leadership and what it means to be a Christ-centered person. Go to ShrineChurch.com to learn more. No reservations are required. See ShrineChurch.com. As a people. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Andre Villeneuve. We're looking at his work uh, in the book, uh, The Divine, Divine Marriage from Eden to the End of Days. And uh, it's it really you do get uh, a big picture of salvation history uh, yeah. through this nuptial imagery that we see uh, in Scripture. Uh, I was looking at um, what you wrote regarding the uh, the Gospel of John, and um, I never I've never heard this before, so I, I want to make sure we talked about it. You mentioned that in the fourth Gospel. Nuptial symbolism is introduced by the sequence of seven days of a new creation, culminating in the wedding at Cana, where Jesus, as the new Adam, addresses his mother as woman, hinting at the woman of Genesis 3.15. That's great stuff. But yeah. tell, tell me, show me where you, where does that, how do you pick that up in the Gospel of John? How do you pick up the sequence? Of seven, the, the Gospel of John uh, obviously is a masterpiece, and uh, it's it's actually full of nuptial symbolism, but it's very hidden. Mm-hmm. You know how many times Jesus is called bridegroom in the, the Gospel of John? 
uh, just one. Mm-hmm. Just one in John 3.29 by John the Baptist. And But when you look at the wedding at Cana, at first sight, probably most people would think, oh, it's right there in the wedding at Cana. But at the wedding at Cana, Jesus is not the one who's getting married, right? right. He, he turns the, the water into wine. And uh, you, you can get a sense there's something going on here, but it's hard to put your finger on it unless you really look carefully at the text and have an idea of what's the, the Jewish background behind it. So, yeah, it, it, obviously John chapter 2 comes after John chapter 1. And so mm-hmm. what leads up to the wedding at Cana? Well, for one thing, through... And, and by the way, just let me say, for, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with this, it really is important to know that the gospel writers were conscious of sequencing yeah. and the story form, what they were t- saying and telling. These, these are not just random uh, reminiscences that they're throwing out. They're, they're yeah. creating a story. Here. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And they're very familiar. They're very aware of what the Old Testament teaches. So to really understand the Gospels, you have to have a good knowledge of the Old Testament. Yeah. Otherwise, it barely works. So what's going on in John chapter 1, we see first, obviously, the revelation of the Logos, the Word made flesh, Mm -hmm. and then we meet John the Baptist, and then we hear about this sequence of days. If you look at the text carefully, it says John the Baptist appears, and then the next day he met the the disciples, and the next day he saw Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God, and the next day, so you have a sequence of four days, Yeah. right? And then it says in John chapter 2, verse 1, and on the third day there was a wedding at Cana. So what do we see here? We see a sequence of four days plus three. So really, the wedding at Cana is at the end on the seventh day of this sequence of, of yeah. a week uh, of sorts. And we hear the beginning of the Gospel of John. How does the Gospel of John begin? Uh, as is well known, in the beginning right. was the Word, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's been noted by many scholars. In the beginning, it's echoing the book of Genesis. And we have right. this theme of light and of uh, of uh, well, of of the words becoming flesh, so there are some connections with with Genesis one, and then also it's well known that it's a bit odd the way Jesus talks to Mary. That's right. right. So it, have, everybody points that out. Yeah, is he being rude here? Is he being impersonal? Right. Why does he address her as woman? Woman. What is this between me and you? It's very awkward in English. In Hebrew, it's a lot more idiomatic, what is to me and to you, uh, it is a bit familiar, and it does seem a little bit, a little bit rough, even, uh, even in Hebrew. So, uh, obviously, someone calling uh, his, his mother woman, it's only hinted at the Gospel of John, but from this we get more light from the book of Revelation, the other great jo- joining uh, writing at the end of the mm-hmm. New Testament, where we see in John chapter 12, a woman who comes who is clothed with the sun and the, wo- the moon under her feet, and she gives birth to one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So that's an allusion to Psalm 2. Yep. And obviously we're talking about this woman who is, in many ways she represents Israel, but she's also the mother of the Messiah, and so right. she is Mary. And then we see her battling this ancient serpent, who is also known as Satan and the devil. So Revelation 12 identifies the ancient serpent in the garden, because in the garden he's never identified as Satan or the devil, right? Right, It's a later tradition. And uh, so John 2 through Revelation 12 really makes makes it quite evident that there's a connection between... um, between Adam and Eve, and then between Jesus and his mother. 
Yeah. So she's she's Mary is the second Eve in that passage. Is that That's right? right. Right. Fascinating. Right. But there's also a very strong connection with uh, the the Sinai revelation, and that is even less noticed by by commentaries. So what's going on at um, at at the wedding at Cana? So once again, Jesus will turn water into wine. We mm-hmm. see a bridegroom who is kind of clueless. We don't even know who he is, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. we have the the master of the feast. And then we see Mary who says uh, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, can you think of a passage in the Old Testament that sounds a lot like that? Do whatever he tells you. Now, that's a command. We hear it said in the affirmative much earlier in the Old Testament. Whatever he has has said, we will do and we will obey. Yeah, that's the children of Israel. Children of Israel who say that three times at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 24. Yeah, that's fascinating. Right. And uh, when you look at when did God reveal, reveal himself at Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19, we're told that on the third day, God would appear at, at Mount Sinai. On the third day. Interesting. And the Targum on the book of Exodus, once again, the Targum is this ancient Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, has actually a sequence of four days leading up to this third day leading up to Mount Sinai. So basically, (laughs) Moses and the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai. The next day, Moses went up on the mountain. The next day, God said, prepare yourselves because I'm going to appear on the third day. And on the third day, God appeared on the mountain. Wow. And... He gives Israel the Torah, which we know as the law, and in Jewish tradition, the Torah is compared with good wine, <laughs> the, the wine that brings joy, that brings uh, that brings life, and um, wow. yeah, so we really see a, a strong connection here between this uh, this wine that's given, and as I said a bit earlier, Mount Sinai in Jewish tradition is recognized as a betrothal, and so this is where God calls Israel to become His bride. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so when you read that... <laughs> that's, that's incredible background. There's a lot there. So when you read the wedding at Cana in light of Mount Sinai, you realize, wow, and what did God reveal at Mount Sinai to Israel, apart from from the Torah? Um, covenant. Covenant, yeah. but also himself. Yes. R- yes. Right? Yeah. His, and, and he's known they, as revealing his yeah. his glory. Yes, his right? glory. That's right. What, yeah. did, what did Jesus reveal at the wedding at Cana? Yeah. Yeah. He said, my hour has not yet come, but then he revealed his glory, and we're told at the end of the narrative. And let's, let's actually, that's always puzzled people, that uh, on the one hand, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, but it's his first public miracle. Yeah. Uh, is he reluctant at that point? What does he, what does he mean? His is hour... He, is he referring to, the, is he referring to the, the passion yeah. by my hour? Yeah, he yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. So, in other words, it's the beginning of his public ministry. It's his first miracle, and there's an anticipation of his passion. And yeah. so, in, in a sense, uh, Mary prompts him by asking the servants to do whatever he does. You know, this yeah. is a response of, or an echo of Israel at Mount Sinai, their obedience to the Lord, and now the servants are, are to obey what Jesus says. And that leads to this revelation of the wine, the wine of the new Torah, to revealing Jesus' glory, but his glory will be fully revealed really during the Paschal Mystery at yeah. the, in the, the crucifixion and resurrection. It, it must be difficult for you to hear sermons because they're thin by comparison to oh. what you're describing right now. Oh, you really want to go there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening and I'm thinking back over all the sermons that I gave years ago. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, ah, that never even occurred to me. <laughs> 
We have a lot of room for improvement in our sermons. <laughs> this uh, the the alleged seven minutes uh, yeah. limit of. Uh, of sermons, our Catholics uh, know so little about Scripture, and yeah. there's just so much room for good catechesis and good faith formation. And uh, something I tell the seminarians when I'm teaching is, you know what the first reading is for? It's actually not there to be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell them, if I ever show up after you ordain, and if I, if I ever show up at a Mass, and you just ignore the first reading, I will go after you. I will, I will hunt you down. Yeah. The, the first reading is meant to set up the gospel reading, isn't it? Isn't there supposed to be a direct correlation between the two? It is. Yeah. It is. But very often, you can just the first reading is homiletics material right there. So, of course, the trick is to, to connect all the readings, the psalm and the first reading, and, yeah. the, and the gospel and the second reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that is rich. Um, the the, the, the St. Paul... Uh, the, yeah, okay, we got time. Uh, St. Paul... Does he? How does he understand uh, this nuptial imagery? How, how does he use it? Before we go to St. Paul, I should probably say a few things about what's going on in the Old Testament. Sure. The, the big yeah, picture no, go right the Old ahead. That's, that's fine. So the whole first half of the book is really focused on the Old Testament, uh, which the Jews know as, as the Tanakh, the, the Torah, the, the prophets, and the writings. And the whole idea is that nuptial symbolism is revealed in and through salvation history. And in my original dissertation, in this book, it's still there, uh, you see four key moments of salvation history mm-hmm. in uh, both Old Testament and New Testament. And these four key moments actually reflect very much a very Catholic worldview. And this is where I was stealthily doing Catholic theology as I was... Uh, at Hebrew University. At Hebrew yeah. University, yeah. yeah. And so we already talked about the Garden of Eden, God who who marries, who weds Adam and Eve, and who marries the world. And so marriage has this original prototype, right, that is ideal, because marriage now, as human nature is wounded, and marriage is wounded, we sometimes, we often lose track of what marriage is supposed to be. So we see this original prototype in the wedding between Adam and Eve, and between God and creation, and we know that that was broken through sin in Genesis 3. So that calls for a redemptive moment. So number one, the prototype in the Garden of Eden and what is this redemptive moment in the Old Testament? That would be Mount Sinai. Yeah. Okay, God reveals himself to Israel. Uh, the rabbis say this is when God restored his presence on earth, this presence that had been lost with the sin of the Garden of Eden when his glory departed from creation. Mm-hmm. At Mount Sinai, he reestablishes his covenant. He weds, he marries the people of Israel or betroths them. And now he is in this nuptial marriage relationship with them. But what's the problem? There's a few problems. First, well, there's the golden calf and the fact that the Israelites were not always super faithful. Right. But they had to depart from Mount Sinai, right? And so how would they remain in communion with God yeah. throughout their history, through the wanderings in the desert, but also... Tabernacle so, and temple. And that's point number three. Yeah. Okay. So we have this redemptive moment that restores God's presence, but then how we, is God's presence going to remain through with Israel? And that's going to be in the tabernacle. And there's a liturgical component of that. Okay. Hold it there. Okay. We'll pick it up on the other side. All right. Uh, my guest, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, we're taking a look at his uh, really great work called Divine Marriage from Eden to the End of Days. And uh, looking over again, this idea of the mystical marriage between Christ and his church, between uh, God and Israel, between God and the world. The Bench Pub in Livonia is a proud supporter of Ave Maria Radio, where all are welcome and treated like family. 
During this Lenten season, we are bringing back our delicious beer-battered cod, golden fries, and served with our house-made coleslaw. The Bench Pub is located on 5 Mile, west of Farmington Road in Livonia. Mention Ave Maria Radio and receive a 10% discount. Meet friends this Lent at the Bench Pub in Livonia and enjoy their Lenten Friday fish fry. Support for this Ave Maria program comes in part by the not-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Shopping for insurance, mortgage products, Catholic health coverage, identity protection, or financial planning? SaintAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for all those and more. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. STAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. People ask how they can care for older family members who can't fully care for themselves. One answer is Visiting Angels, America's choice in senior home care. Visiting Angels assists adults nationwide with 600 locations to continue living at home and not have to move into a nursing home. Their caregivers provide assistance in hygiene, meals, and lighthouse work. Services are provided up to 24 hours per day, and you can select your caregiver before service begins. More information, including franchise opportunities, is on the web at visitingangels.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Make family life the most important activity on your calendar. Parents often worry about losing their kids' hearts to peers, to the culture, or to the media. But simply restricting your kids' access to friends, culture, or media isn't the answer. Spending more time with them is. Kids give their hearts to the people and things they spend the most time with. If we're not making daily family time the most important activity on our schedule, we're effectively giving our kids permission to give their hearts to someone other than us. Putting family time first and scheduling other activities around it is one of the most important practices Catholic families can have. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Crested in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization, Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 75% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Mutual funds does not invest in companies engaged in abortion, pornography, embryonic stem cell research, and those making corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Ave Maria Mutual Funds has a zero-tolerance policy that helps ensure investments align with moral beliefs. Ave Maria Mutual Funds may be contacted at 1-866-AVE-MARIA or online at AveMariaFunds.com, a proud sponsor of Ave Maria Radio.
good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, who's the author of Divine Marriage, From Eden to the End of Days. Uh, it's, it's a remarkably rich book. We've been going over some of it. Um, we're talking about the uh, this idea of the mystical marriage, uh, the nuptial imagery that we see, uh, especially uh, in the New Testament. But uh, he talked about mystical marriage as a return to the origins. So you see it with Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. Um, again, it's um, pointing to the mystical marriage between Christ and the church. Then there's mystical marriage as redemptive event, dealing with Passover, Exodus, and Sinai. And then uh, when the children of Israel um, are on the move, uh, you have mystical marriage and liturgical worship. So you have the tabernacle and then the temple. And then where do we go from there? Well, so that's number three. Number one, the prototype in the Garden of Eden. Number two, redemptive event to repair the break that was called by, caused by the fall. Mm-hmm. And then as we said, Mount Sinai was very short-lived, and so they had to move on and move towards the promised land. And so that's when you had the tabernacle, and this required sacrifices uh, for the sake of communion. And uh, this is where there's really a lot in the, the Midrash and the commentaries that speak of the, the, the Holy of Holies as a nuptial chamber, the place where God was united with his bride. So wow. uh, the, the marriage bed of sorts yeah. between God and Israel. So you don't usually think of that when you think of, uh, of the temple. Right. But you have a lot of imageries in, the, uh, in the, the, the Talmud, for example, in those Jewish writings that are almost a little bit shocking. For example, when the, uh, the the pagans, for example, the Greeks, when they took over the uh, Jerusalem at the time of the Maccabees, and they actually opened, they removed the curtain to see what was in the Holy of Holies, and they saw the two cherubim embracing each other. And hmm. uh, even before that, the some of the sages, we don't know if it's true or if it's legend or what right. is it, but it was part of the Jewish imagination. They said... Uh, Behold, Israel, this is how much God loves you, like a man loves a woman. And this is the love between God and you. So the temple was this recollection and recalling of Mount Sinai, of this betrothal or marriage, and at the same time it pointed towards the future, towards the consummation of the marriage between God and Israel in the Messianic age, and that's what we see in the prophets, especially near the end of Isaiah, right, around Isaiah 62 and things like that, about this restoration of the marriage. So it's a real drama between the fall and the the, the break uh, caused by sin, redemption, perpetuated through the liturgy and uh, sacrificial worship in the tabernacle, but also looking towards the future. And then when we come to the New Testament, we see that same pattern. The Messianic Age has started, but you're seeing the the pattern recapitulated. It's recapitulated, exactly. So we talked about the wedding at Cana, which has an allusion back to the Garden of Eden with Mary, who is the woman. Uh And then... What's going to be the great redemptive event? Well, that's kind of easy for us Christians. It's the Paschal Mystery, right? Sure. Where God, uh, or Christ, revealed his glory. Yes. And the Paschal Mystery, Jesus wore a crown, which is what bridegrooms also wore in the, in the uh, ancient uh, world. And uh, we have a lot of nuptial, for example, what does Nicodemus come and he brings myrrh and aloes, yes. right? Which yes. is something we, meet, we see in the Song of Songs. And even before his passion, we see Mary who anoints him with uh, with nards. And the only other place in the Bible where we hear about nard is the Song of Songs. <laughs> and then at the at his resurrection, 
Unique to the Gospel of John, we see uh, Mary Magdalene who comes to the tomb. And think about this. We hear, we see a woman. It's still dark. She comes to the tomb. She's looking for the one she loves. Yes. She meets guardians and she asks them, you know, where have they, have you seen yes. the one I love? Yes. And then she sees, she turns around a few times. She sees Jesus and he says, do not hold on to me. Why does he say, do not hold on to me? Yeah. Well, that's the Song of Songs, chapter 3. I held him and I would not let him go until he brought me into my mother's chamber. That, 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 so there's echoes of the Song of Songs there. Uh, the resurrection, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what does Jesus say? I have not yet gone to the Father, for I go and prepare, uh, you know, I, I go prepare a place for you. So he's echoing the Song of Songs and his words and his actions at the, the resurrection. So there you have, this is your redemptive event in the New Covenant. It's his, his passion, death, and resurrection. But then... In the Old Testament, we have the tabernacle to perpetuate this. And yeah. how does that work now in the New Testament? Well, now we go back to your question from earlier. Is St. Paul, he says, well, first, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so it happens within our bodies and our souls. But also, we have baptism and we have the Eucharist. What is baptism? Well, baptism is a washing of water. And what do Jewish women, even to this day, when they get married, they have to go through a mikveh, which is going down in the water and coming out for a type of ritual purification. And we see that in Ezekiel 16, we see this this metaphor of God adopting Israel as a woman who was abandoned, as a girl who was abandoned. He washed her and cleansed her to bring her into covenant with him. And then when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about this great, great mystery, which yeah. is the marriage between Christ and the church. And he said, yes, uh, he washed the church. All right? He washed her and uh, purified her so that she may be without spot or wrinkle. And so he's talking about baptism. He, he's also talking about this nuptial, this bridal bath of sorts. Yeah. Right? And then he says... Uh, for the, uh, you know, a husband shall love their wives as Christ loved the right. church and gave himself and, uh, you know, basically feeding her and nourishing yes. her. Yep. And the, here we have some Eucharistic allusions towards this one flesh union. So just as for Israel, the tabernacle perpetuated the marriage. For us, we see the marriage is consummated at the cross with the passion, but it's continued in through history, through the sacraments, especially baptism and the Eucharist. Wow. Yeah, it is interesting that this is a, this represents a worldview that is uh, well, it's alien to most uh, Christians. Right. You know, I mean, it's it is um, you 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 need how to how to put this. You need really an ecclesial culture mm-hmm. that um, expresses these truths, not only at the time of the liturgy. But in in the, the even in the daily uh, life um, as families as they as they think on these things, uh, how do these truths take form yes. uh, in the family culture that you're building? Yes, um, because this this is really goes. Uh, this is so much richer than the naturalistic and materialistic and scientific view of the world that I'm afraid uh, many Christians carry with them right. just because it's, that's the culture we swim in. You know, we get, right. That's what we, that we're wet with. Yeah. We're not wet with the truths of baptism. Yeah. We're wet with the truths of the culture that we're swimming in. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, do... 
mystical marriage as eschatological consummation. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is we're in this period of time where the kingdom has been inaugurated, yeah. but it's not yet fully right. Uh, manifest. Right. Um, how, what do you see that, uh, in light of this, how ought we to be living in this time between the already and the not yet? Yes. Yeah, well, the not yet, first we see a glimpse of it in the book of Revelation, yeah. with the coming down of the new New Jerusalem uh, as a bride adorned for her, her husband, and so we see the end of salvation history is essentially a marriage, is yeah. a consummation of the yeah. marriage, Revelation 19 and, and 21. In the meantime, what should we do? Well, that is a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, first, we need to develop a, a biblical worldview, and as you just said, uh, it's the irony that in this day and age, we've never had such easy access to so, so many great resources and books and apps, and, and yeah. on our phones, we can have a whole library, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if there's ever been an age of so much ignorance of, of sacred scripture, right? right? right. St. Jerome said, uh, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And so you're right. We see so many uh, Catholics and Christians who may even be devout Catholics sure. and Christians, but uh, still there's very often not a whole lot of depth in our knowledge of, of Scripture. And that's because I think particularly in America, we don't have a great culture of learning, of ongoing learning, with some exceptions, of course, and some great communities and so on. But uh, that's something else I learned from living in Israel is that uh, observant Orthodox Jews have such a great culture of learning. At every Sabbath meal, you know, they, they'll read from the Torah and they'll discuss the Torah. And it goes way beyond, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts yeah. which you're about to receive, which is basically the spiritual life of most Catholic families, right? Yeah. If even that, that we yeah. say a quick blessing and that's it. Then we yeah. talk about football and secular yeah. and yeah. frivolous stuff, right? And... Uh, so at every Sabbath, they, they pull out the Torah and they have, uh, you know, they give honor to God and discuss the word of God. And uh, young Jewish men on the Sabbath or even during the day, they go to the, the synagogue and spend 45 minutes uh, praying and studying the Torah. And sometimes the whole afternoon on the Sabbath, they go to their yeshivas, to their Bible rabbinical schools, and they sit two by two and they just discuss the word of God. And it's wow. a source of great joy and exhilaration almost yeah, yeah. Uh, so they see the torah as a, as a source of joy and uh, that's something that we as catholics we tend to see study if at all as a means to an end so we study so that somehow we can you know get to heaven or get to know god mm-hmm. but they see study as the, the highest form of worship of course they're lacking a lot too because they don't have the eucharist and the sacraments sure sure but they see study as worship yeah. and i don't know how many catholics actually have that Approach to say, hey, I'm actually worshiping God by spending time with the scriptures. Yeah. And there's, there's in some Catholic circles even a slight anti-intellectualism yeah. that the, somehow study um, gets in the way of right. your encounter with God. Right. You know, um, right. And, and simply that's, you know, the right use of reason is uh, intended right. to direct us uh, to God, yeah. not become a barrier yeah. to knowing God. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, I, I, a, a, a culture where st- studying is seen as um, a joy, 
it's I don't want to. I mean, when we think of, we think of things that are our joy, we think about going and playing sports or something or right. games. Right. Uh, it sounds as though for them a joy is to immerse yourself in the text mm-hmm. and see what you can derive from it. Yeah, uh, and it's usually a communal thing, so you don't yeah, see so much good. in Jewish culture sitting alone at the library for hours on end and okay. just, just reading on your own. So it's usually at least two by two and in small groups, and it can involve. It usually involves eating, so that helps a lot and making things fun and more enjoyable. And often it involves singing and even dancing. You know, so it's it's yeah. all really very, very well integrated. Um, the access access again to the tree of life. Set that up for us in this framework. Mm-hmm. Access to, to the tree of life. Well, I'm thinking of Proverbs 3.18, which says that wisdom herself is, is the tree of life. And I have a chapter on the wisdom literature, and especially I look at the book of Sirach, yeah. for which I'm writing a commentary right now for right. the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. And uh, Sirach 24 identifies wisdom. So there's this perpetual search for wisdom in all the wisdom books, right? Where is right. wisdom to be found? And we know the beginning of wisdom is is the fear of the Lord. So it involves humility, it involves submitting to God's commandments. But in fact, uh, Sirach 24, as well as the book of Baruch, identify wisdom with with the Torah. Huh. And so, yeah. uh, and with the, the tree of life. And so, how do you get back to the tree of life? Well, through wisdom, but also by studying the Torah, which is this way of returning into communion with God. Yeah. Well, Andre, thanks. Uh, great talking with you. This it's been is a pleasure. Marvelous, marvelous book, and I'm, I've got it. Like I said uh, on Kindle, but I'm looking forward to its use on the uh, my digital library system. It's not yet there, but thank you. My and pleasure. We'll thanks talk for again having soon. Me. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Al Cresta. Be right back. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. And now, a Meditation Minute from Father Gabriel Richard High School. I'm Joey, a senior, with a meditation on the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. In this Gospel passage, Jesus casts out an unclean spirit from a man in the synagogue. Those who were in the synagogue were amazed by his authority and power. I think we sometimes forget how much Jesus is capable of. He is the omnipotent Son of God, second person of the Trinity. He defied death and saved us from our sin. This gospel is a reminder for us that Jesus can do anything. All we have to do is ask. Remember, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. I challenge you to think about one thing you need Jesus' help with today and ask for his strength. This Meditation Minute is brought to you by the students, faculty, and staff of Father Gabriel Richard High School. Visit fgrhs.org. The National Eucharistic Congress is teaming up with Catholic Men Leadership Alliance to bring you a free online Lenten event for men. Join Dr. Edward Street, Bishop Andrew Cousins, and John Michael Lucido. Hello, I'm Bishop Andrew Cousins, and I'm delighted to invite you to join me March 11th 
from 11 to 1 Central. We're going to talk about the Eucharist and what a difference it makes to learn to live a Eucharistic life in Lent. Sign up for the Heroic Men Summit at HeroicMen.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me. Again, you can uh, uh, purchase Divine Marriage from Eden to the End of Days. Uh, It's in the online bookstore at AveMariaRadio.net. That, again, is AveMariaRadio.net. I'd encourage you to do so. And uh, also uh, urge you to follow up on our previous conversations today with uh, uh, Archbishop uh, Gudziak regarding the situation we're seeing in Ukraine. And then uh, let me remind you of the Familiaris Consortio conference that's coming up. And I would like you to, again, when you go to AveMariaRadio.net, look in the upper left-hand corner of the homepage where you'll see a number of different uh, sliders that uh, tell you about upcoming events, things that we regard uh, very highly here. And so, again, head on over to AveMariaRadio.net, go to the Crested Guest Target, Guest archives, go to the online bookstore, and Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio, and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.